Hi everyone, welcome to the Horse.com's Ask the Vet Live Laminitis Update. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, digital editor of the Horse.com, and it is Thursday, February 28th, 2013. Tonight's Ask the Vet Live is brought to you by ExclusivelyEquine.com, the official store of the Horse Magazine and the Horse.com. We are joined tonight by two experts in the field of laminitis. Our first is Dr. Nora Greninger, who's with us from Virginia. She is board certified in internal medicine. And we also have Dr. Brian Fraley with us, who is in Lexington, Kentucky, and he specializes in podiatry. Welcome, doctors. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Greninger, can you tell us a little bit about your involvement with laminitis? I know you have have big ties to helping with this this condition. Yes, thank you. Um, my main involvement with laminitis started as I became a part of the laminitis conference. Um, the laminitis conference, the long name is the International Conference on Laminitis and Diseases of the Foot. Um, it's a conference that's held on odd years in Florida and on even years in, in uh, California. And it's where kind of all the big researchers um, come together and present the most up-to-date information that they've been studying about laminitis um, on an annual basis. And the other big idea of the conference is getting both uh, veterinarians, farriers, and even owners um, and clients and horse caregivers all to work together on a team approach to solving laminitis. Um, okay. So I'm an active part of that um, planning committee and faculty, and then I also practice at two practices in Northern Virginia and run a consulting business. Okay. And Dr. Fraley, you're also involved in the farrier veterinarian relationship. Can you tell us a little bit about your practice and your work uh, helping train others? Yes, yes, ma'am. Uh, thanks for having me. And um, I am uh, based in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, at the uh, based out of the Haggard Equine uh, Medical Institute. I'm, a, I'm an affiliate here, and um, we we uh, basically run the podiatry department and. Uh, my day day in and day out that's that's all I do are, are foot problems and the majority of my day would be spent with laminitis and 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 we'll talk more about um, laminitis in general but mostly chronic laminitis courses are prob- probably the majority of, of my caseload so so very little of my work is in preventing laminitis at the moment but but um, unfortunately treating the consequences of, of laminitis and um, probably the majority of my caseload is, is actually thoroughbred brood mares so um, mares and a lot of pasture induced laminitis a lot of laminitis uh, secondary to to infections or such as retained placentas and things like that so um, I guess um, that's that's how my day is spent uh, day in and day out is is the majority of my day spent treating laminated courses. Okay, thank you. And for this event during registration, we had hundreds of questions. This is a huge topic for people, and so we're going to try to buzz through as many as possible while giving good uh, answers. Um, but I want to let everyone know that we have an hour. And so we're going to cover as much ground as possible during that hour. If you are listening live and have some questions that you would like to send in, go ahead and enter it in the console in front of you. Um, And maybe give us about 15 minutes to get started so that we can dive into the questions that have been submitted ahead of time first. Uh, Dr. Greninger, I want to start from you, from the medical perspective. Can you briefly explain to us what laminitis is? Sure. Um, so laminitis uh, just means inflammation of the lamina, and the lamina are the Velcro-like structures that hold the coffin bone inside of the hoof, so basically they support the entire horse. So they need to be really strong, but also incredibly flexible so that horses can walk and move appropriately. So a variety of scenarios, which we'll talk more about later, can lead to inflammation of those lamina or laminitis. And certainly there's lots of both cellular level differences and microscopic differences on how that inflammation really manifests in the hoof. But it's one of those, I've heard it said, through all roads lead to Rome scenarios where once that inflammation has started and really starts propagating within the hoof, um, the end result is pretty similar in most cases. And the end result, which is probably what Dr. Fraley will talk about more in a minute, but is that those inflamed lamina just cannot support the weight of the horse anymore. And so they stretch and separate, which causes even more inflammation and certainly a lot of pain for the horse. Um, and in really severe cases, even leads to that coffin bone actually pulling away from the hoof wall, which is what we call either rotation or sinking. 
So one of the hardest parts, most challenging things about laminitis is that by the time we see clinical signs, so the horse is sore or shifting weight or the pulses are up or the hoof is hot, a lot of the damage has already happened within the hoof. And so a lot of our treatments at that point are directed at trying to prevent further damage and in some ways even playing sort of catch up for all the damage that's occurred before we got any hint of it externally. And that's why, you know, so much focus is put on trying to prevent laminitis and ways to identify risk factors, which we'll talk about later, um, to prevent the disease rather than treat it. Okay. And Dr. Fraley, as a podiatrist, what is your role in helping these horses that have laminitis? Okay, so the 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 typically I, we we tend to get those horses that that um, have have progressed from the acute phase to actually the chronic phase, and they're so the the lamina is separating, and uh, we're typically trying trying to get these horses in some type of of support, and trying to unload a, a lot of the horse's weight is is coming down uh, the bony column, and then uh, like Dr. Benninger said, the lamina are just all that's supporting the coffin bone within that hoof cap. And so we've got the horse's weight and gravity to fight, plus the pull of the deep flexor tendon. So, so the deep flexor tendon runs down the back of the leg, and, and it inserts on the bottom of the coffin bone, and it creates an enormous amount of pull. And that's why um, a lot of these horses go on to rotate is because when the, when the lamina break down, the pull of the deep flexor tendon wins, and the coffin bone will just, just rotate. And then we, we get a lot of a lot of uh, leakage of blood and blood byproducts and things like that. So we're often dealing with with um, uh, secondary infections down the road. And um, but our goal in terms of shoeing is to try, in general, and we can talk. We're going to talk a lot more about shoeing later. But in general, is to try to mitigate the pull of the deep flexor tendon and try to support the horse um, and try to try to. Um, Try to minimize the the chances of that of that rotation becoming catastrophic or sinking. Okay, and Dr. Fraley, we often refer to laminitis as founder as owners. Mm-hmm. Are we talking about the same thing? Uh, it, it's used. It's used. It's difficult to answer because it's used. It is used interchangeably by a lot of people. But in fact, um, founder would, would imply more of the chronic, more of the chronic. Uh, condition. So the horse that has has already rotated or sunk, that's that's classically a foundered horse versus a a, a laminitic horse. So um, I guess I I should go ahead and you know discuss some of the the phases of laminitis. So so horses um, that go through specific phases, and our goal is to stop progression through those phases. So the the first phase of laminitis is is developmental, and that's a horse that that um, doesn't even know it's painful yet. Whatever is triggering the disease uh, within the hoof capsule, be it, be it an infection or carbohydrate overload, grain overload, um, whatever is triggering that episode is causing damage at the lamina. But the horse is not painful yet. We're not in an inflammatory state. Once that horse moves out of the developmental stage uh, uh, and becomes acute, that's when we have pain. So the, the onset of pain implies now we have acute laminitis, and that's what, that's what the owner notices. That's when the horse it has bounding digital pulses, perhaps a laminitic stance, and heat in the foot. So now we're in the acute stage. Our goal then is to prevent the horse from progressing to the chronic stage, which, is, which implies some displacement has happened within the hoof capsule of the coffin bone, so either rotation or sinking. So once that horse rotates or sinks, it's a whole different ballgame. Um, the acute horse, if we can prevent rotation or sinking, uh, that horse can go on and have equal chance of being an athlete. And horses, horses in fact, have um, multiple acute episodes throughout their lifetime sometimes. And those horses are, as long as they don't displace, they can go on and have um, very good uh, athletic careers. Um, but once they displace, rotate, or sink, yes, they can have athletic careers. It's just it's just a little less likely, to, and and sometimes very less likely, depending on the the extent. Okay, so um, I'll wrap up here quickly. But 
um, we also like to divide the chronic stage of laminitis, so horses that have rotation or sinking, into two, two categories. As, as podiatrists, we typically talk about them as chronic stable or chronic unstable. So chronic stable horses are horses that have rotated, but they've stopped, they're, they're, they're stable, as the name implies, and they're remodeling, growing sole. Um, those horses that are unstable are actively rotating or sinking. So um, two very different, different populations, so it's important to, to, uh, to talk about them. Okay. And Dr. Greninger, we have a question from Lisa in Dublin, Ireland, and she wants to know what the specific risk factors are that make some horses more prone to laminitis or predisposed to laminitis than others. Can you touch on those for us? Definitely, and that's one of the big areas that, you know, we really target is these risk factors so we can try to eliminate or decrease them as much as possible. Probably the number one risk factor that we're learning more about every day is insulin resistance, um, and that can be either due to horses that have what we call equine metabolic syndrome or horses that have what we call Cushing's disease. In either case, insulin resistance is a part of that. Um, and these are the horses that, the metabolic syndrome horses, those are the younger, really easy keeper horses that seem to just survive on, you know, air and water. Um, a lot of times they'll have kind of fat pads in their crusty neck and at their tail head or behind their withers. Um, and um, the older Cushing horses often do have similar sort of fat deposition along with the long curly hair coat and failure to shed out and a variety of other clinical signs. But the sort of common ground between those is that both those types of horses can have insulin resistance. And in those horses, their risk of laminitis is significantly higher than other horses. Um, insulin does a variety of things to the hoof, um, and it's a fairly complicated matter that researchers are, are still sorting out. But um, it changes the sort of way blood flows to the hoof and the way nutrients get to the hoof and even the strength of the hoof tissues. Um, again, making those horses really at risk for laminitis. So, thankfully, we have some pretty good screening tests um, for insulin resistance. Um, you can take the baseline fasting blood sample first thing in the morning and measure insulin and glucose, and that's a, a very good basic screening test. Um, and it's, it's so useful that I started recommending it for pre-purchase exams and as part of an annual or even semi-annual evaluation of horses. So that's probably the number one thing we can do to help um, to find horses who are at high risk for laminitis. Um, the other thing, some of which Dr. Fraley touched on, are that horses that have systemic illness, severe systemic illness, so a routine placenta, um, really bad pneumonia, um, very severe diarrhea, those horses, all the toxins that are involved in either the pneumonia or the routine placenta in their uterus or um, coming from their GI tract with diarrhea, those toxins, along with the stress on their body in general, um, can make them really prone to laminitis as well. So um, that's a little different because obviously you know the horse is sick from the primary problem, but those horses are at high risk for laminitis. Um, and then lastly, um, horses that have um, a, a severe injury in one limb, so, so that they're almost non-weight-bearing, say, on their left forelimb, then their right forelimb is bearing a lot more weight than it's supposed to be and not doing the sort of normal cycling of weight that a horse's leg is supposed to do. And so we call that support limb laminitis, where the limb that's now suddenly bearing too much weight, whether it's a forelimb or hind limb, is at risk for developing laminitis. And so those are some of the big categories that we think of as risk factors. Um, and again, there's a good screening mechanism for the first insulin resistance. And then when we know we have a horse with severe systemic illness or with non-weight-bearing leanness in one limb, we can take um, you know, steps to try to mitigate the risk of laminitis for the remaining limbs of that horse. So that's all of those roads leading to the one final outcome. Correct. Yep, all those kind of heading to the same laminitis, even though it's coming from different, different categories. Okay. And Dr. Fraley, we have a question from Victoria in Sacramento, California, and Victoria wants to know if she should still ride her horse if her horse has had a mild case of laminitis in the front hooves. And she also wants to know if her horse should be shod. Okay. Okay, Victoria, that, that depends on, um, again, I, I briefly went over those phases of laminitis, developmental acute 
uh, chronic stable and chronic unstable. And it, it really depends, you know, um, on on the, the, the phase of laminitis your horse has, 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 has encountered. And I'm assuming you're probably talking about a chronic stable horse, a horse that has had um, slight bit of rotation in the past, and you know that that rotation is is permanent. Those changes that happen in the lamina are permanent. Uh, doesn't mean uh, their X-rays can't can improve over time. We we can help that as farriers and, and veterinarians, and but but there is there are there is some damage there that will will always always be there. Um, but but there's nothing with with mildly uh, chronic laminated courses that to to say that they can't go on and and be ridden. Uh, it's just a difficult uh, question to answer is, is if it should be shot. And I guess I would need um, a little more information uh, like with radiographs and a physical examination. But um, the short answer is, though, there's nothing wrong with, with barefoot. We have a lot of, of foundered horses that we do get barefoot. In fact, we usually use that as a gauge of, of success, and especially in our broodmare populations. If we can get them out of therapeutic shoes over the long term, eventually get them barefoot, their frog is able to engage the ground, and um, whereas you know a shoe can, can keep them suspended by their hoof wall. And keep their frog away from the ground. Um, not saying shoes are, are all bad. I, I use shoes a lot, and and uh, uh, the majority of my bad cases are shot at some point. But that's just a goal of ours: is to eventually get them transitioned out of shoes and to barefoot if possible. Um, I guess the, the short answer is I'd, I'd need a little more information to 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 give a good recommendation on whether your horse should be shod, though. Okay. And Dr. Greninger, we have a question that follows along the same lines as Victoria's and Dr. Fraley's answer. And it's from our live audience. Julie in Portland is out there listening, and she has a 22-year-old mare who has had laminitis. And she wants to know if this is a forever condition with her horse. Um, good question. And um, the hard part, again, is it, it really depends on the degree of laminitis the horse had um, and how much rotation, if any, they've had and, and sort of how long ago that was. And um, and how they've done with it. But um, I think, you know, working with our vet and farrier, she looks at the, the radiographs over time and the, how the horse has done clinically over time. Um, that's going to be a big, um, you know, big information in terms of, you know, how she's going to do long term. And certainly in a, any horse, you know, we're always looking to see if we can identify the underlying cause. So if she hasn't already, you know, potentially done some endocrine testing, again, looking for either insulin resistance or Cushing's disease, um, it might be worth doing that to see if there was some predisposing cause that could be treated to help make it not a forever, forever disease. Um, like Dr. Fairley alluded to before, horses who haven't had rotation, um, you know, can, we can, rest a little easier on those guys long-term. Um, there's still a lot of management and monitoring to go on, but um, but it's certainly a better scenario than horses who have had some degree of rotation where, um, you know, there's there's more in terms of long-term hoof support and um, therapeutics for those guys. But for, for um, this woman, it really depends on kind of the degree of disease that her horse has had and, and probably getting together with her pet and pair to talk about, you know, where she's been and where, where she's gone. Okay. Dr. Fraley, we have a question for you from Linda in Wenatchee, Washington. And Linda wants to know how you identify laminitis pain versus some other type of hoof pain. What would okay. you tell Okay, Linda, good question. Uh, um, you know, this is, this is something that, that um, can, can be surprisingly uh, difficult, and, I, and I've been fooled a number of times. And um, I would say the, the one, um, one disease that, that um, can can has caught me off guard in the past that, that's easily confused with laminitic pain can be uh, fairly chronic navicular horses. So um, these horses can can hurt so badly in their heel or even have some acute uh, tear to their deep flexor tendon that causes them such pain, and it can often be bilateral that they look just like a foundered horse. So um, we're usually, in general, basing uh, basing. Uh, trying to narrow down the possibilities of the pain uh, to differentiate laminitis from other pain with a physical exam, looking at the horse overall, watching the horse's gait. Even though uh, navicular horses can move very similar, um, we're, uh, horses with, in fact, pleuropneumonia, uh, severe pneumonia, can walk just like a foundered horse because it hurts just to, to advance the limb and it hurts their, their chest cavity so badly that they can look like uh, a foundered horse. So, so it's important to do a, a thorough physical exam. We're going to look at the horse's gait. And then um, 
most importantly, we're going to do a physical examination of the hoof capsule. A lot of times, especially with chronic laminitis, these horses have uh, growth ring changes, changes to the hoof capsule, where just like the rings in a tree, we can look at that hoof capsule and notice changes that let us know, okay, this horse has had um, some displacement in the hoof capsule. A lot of times we're able to, with experience, actually almost predict what the x-rays are going to look like based on the, the hoof exam. Uh, then we're going to do a thorough hoof tester exam, try to pinpoint the source of pain. So like a navicular horse is going to usually test uh, sore over the, the frog, the central third of the frog, across the heels. Sometimes they're going to have tendon pain when we push down between the heel bulbs where a foundered horse is not going to, to hurt there. Um, and then uh, lastly, uh, sometimes we resort to blocking, but usually it doesn't, I don't have to go that far. Usually just putting the physical exam uh, findings with the hoof testers and and uh, the overall uh, appearance of the horse, uh, we can we can narrow that down and, and if not we can we can get to, to radiographs. Okay, and our next question is from Susan in Kansas, and it's a two-part question. I'm going to give the first part to you, Dr. Fraley, and the second part to do, uh, to Dr. Greninger. Um, Susan has a 25-year-old thoroughbred warm blood mare who was diagnosed with laminitis in 2006 uh, based on clinical presentation. Radiographs in 2011 revealed no rotation of the coffin bone. She wants to know if the negative x-rays exclude laminitis as the actual diagnosis of the horse. Okay. Um, I, I guess, um, I, Susan, I would say that... Um, no, it, it it does not exclude laminitis as as a diagnosis. Um, the horse could have could have displaced in 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 2006, or it could have been simply an acute flare up that did not cause displacement. But horses can can have a surprising amount of displacement, and then over time the 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 lamina can can tighten up. Um, farriers, we can we can we can change the way things look on radiographs, and with the with the digital digital radiographs now, um, we're more able to to kind of tell what's what's farrier induced and what's what's because uh, we can tell soft tissue opacities in those in those x-rays um, so I, I guess I'd, I'm, the short answer would be that no it does not uh, exclude laminitis as a diagnosis it, it likely just means that um, the horse did not have uh, either either rotation at that time it may have just been acute or or the horse has has uh, become stable enough that she's able to lay down sole again and and it's not as apparent on these on these radiographs. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Fraley. The next part of Susan's question, Dr. Greninger, has to do with whether or not she should keep her mare off grass. Uh, we have some related questions. We got lots of questions actually about spring pasture and horses. Um, from Marilyn in Michigan, she wants wanted you to address the dangers of fresh spring pasture and post-drought rains that bring up that growth. I know here in central Oregon, sometimes we get a February bloom on the grass um, that, that catches us by surprise. We also have a question from Dina in Arkansas, and she wants to know if her mare could just graze a little bit. She'd like her mare to get a little bit of grass, and her mare is insulin resistant. What, what kind of response do you have for, for these three listeners? Sure, and this is obviously a great question that comes up an awful lot. Um, so grass, of course, inherently is not evil. It's a great nutritional source, um, packed with vitamins and minerals that horses are supposed to have. The challenging thing about grass is um, there's kind of two aspects. The first is um, horses who are not used to being on a lot of grass, all of a sudden on a lot of grass, that can really sort of overwhelm their gastrointestinal tract um, and cause a lot of disturbance in their hindgut or in their colon um, and set off basically an episode of acute laminitis in that sense. And then the second one is the one that people are more asking about in this question, which is that um, horses who are insulin resistant um, are more sensitive to grass um, as a risk factor for laminitis. So um, grass, of course, contains carbohydrates, um, and some carbohydrates are, are good. Of course, horses are designed to eat carbohydrates, but um, certain types of carbohydrates that we have tended to call the non-structural carbohydrates, you'll see that term NSC thrown around a lot, um, and it's sort of a constantly changing term, but I'll still use it for the purposes of this discussion. Um, the NSCs are the kind of uh, sugars and fructans and starches that um, are the ones we're concerned with. And um, fresh blooming grass, so grass that um, 
is beautifully coming up fresh and green, um, is very high in those non-structural carbohydrates. Um, and grass that has been stressed in any way, it tends to be high in those non-structural carbohydrates. So stress can include, um, uh, you know, a drought and then um, a lot of rain, and so you get that, you know, big grass coming up, like you said, in February um, on the West Coast and sometimes in the spring or even late summer to early fall here on the East Coast. Um, when there's uh, sunny, warm days but cool, frosty nights, that stresses the grass. Um, grass that's been overgrazed, so lots of horses are eating it, and lots of fresh new little grass um, shoots are coming up all the time. Um, and even grass that's been mowed really short. Um, it seems like a good idea because now you've got short grass, but that actually stresses the grass a bit as well. And so that grass that's coming up after you mow is higher in non-structural carbohydrates. So, again, anything that can stress the grass um, can make it really high in those levels of non-structural carbohydrates that can be a serious risk to horses with insulin resistance. So, um, the first thing to do if you're worried about grazing your horse for any of these people who ask the question, which is a great question, would be to have your horse's insulin sensitivity assessed. And again, that's a, usually um, just a baseline blood sample. Um, sometimes you can do a, a little more in-depth testing as needed because not every horse is really sensitive um, to these uh, non-structural carbohydrates. So um, it's not worth, you know, worrying yourself over horses that, um, you know, have good insulin sensitivity and focusing your, might as well focus your attention on the horses that are insulin resistant. Um, so that's the first thing, getting some baseline endocrine testing with your veterinarian. Um, if you do have a horse that's at risk, um, that's insulin resistant, um, they say that there's certain times of the day that it's a little safer to graze. Um, that tends to be first thing in the morning from like 5 to 8 a.m. or 6 to 9 a.m. Um, obviously, turning your horse out for just those hours is easier said than done <laughs> for a lot of people, um, so that's not always practical. And even during times of grass stress, even that early morning time can be dangerous. Um, and so generally for high-risk horses or at high-risk times, um, you honestly do have to either not allow the horse to graze at all um, or have a, a dry lot, um, some sort of turnout area that relates to a dirt lot so that they can't graze. Um, and then there's grazing levels, which are um, a wonderful invention. Um, they've got the breakaway straps. Um, and horses are usually, they can get anywhere from, can still graze somewhere from like 50% um, ingestion of, of grass, but um, they get better over time. So at first they might only be able to eat half as much grass, but they actually learn how to eat a little better <laughs> through the muzzle because they're um, smart critters. And so over time they'll get a little better at grazing through the muzzle. But um, I think the, you know, remembering that grass in and of itself is not a, you know, a, an evil and that um, some proper testing can help sort out which horses to be concerned about and then figuring out, you know, whether to have a dry lot or a grazing muzzle. Um, are your are your main steps. Um, I would reiterate, you know, the dry lot thing is that's an option, which some places it's so hard to do, um, is a great option because, uh, you know, both, you know, it makes sense and there's also been research to show that horses need turn out for a lot of reasons, but, um, you know, locking the horse up in the stall when all its friends are out grazing um, isn't helping its insulin sensitivity at all and it's not helping its weight and it's not helping its stress and happiness level. So um, having some sort of turnout is really important. Uh, here in the high desert, uh, dry lot is not a problem for us. The horses sure <laughs> like it when they see that green grass. <laughs> so. Oh, I know. I thought it was in California, but now in Virginia, I tell you, we have so much green grass. It's wonderful, but it's also a challenge to find somewhere to put horses. But yeah, it makes for pretty farms. <laughs> Very pretty yeah, farms. Yeah, it sure does. Those rolling hills are gorgeous. Well, um, Dr. Dr. Greenwich and I were just talking earlier about um, you know pasture-induced laminitis, and and, and and it's an area of, of a lot of research. And and um, the AAEP Foundation, American Association of Equine Practitioners, is sp sponsoring a study looking at um, risk factors for pasture-induced laminitis. And uh, if, if if you do think you have a horse that that uh, is acute. Um, and you'd like to enroll it in the study, the best thing to do would be contact your veterinarian and, and, and have them enroll your horse in, in the study. Um, again, it's looking, looking at risk factors for the disease, um, www.vetmed.tamu.edu forward slash laminitis would, would, would get you the website to, to, to get started. So, but the best thing to do would be obviously to contact your veterinarian and request that they, they get enrolled in the study. 
Okay. Thank you, Dr. Fraley, for pointing that out. And we do have on thehorse.com some information that links to that website if people are having a hard time finding it um, or didn't get a chance to write it down just then. If you get on thehorse.com, do a search for uh, Laminitis Project, you'll come up uh, with the contact info for that. Um, we have a follow-up question, Dr. Fraley, to your response on hoof pain versus yes. laminitis pain. Uh-huh. Um, and it is Amy in Houston's listening live, and Amy wants to know if there are any new techniques for identifying and diagnosing soft, stru- soft tissue structure issues within the hoof besides uh, the, the venogram. If you could explain a little bit to our audience what that is, and then maybe sure. some other options that are out there as well. Sure, sure. So, so um, a venogram is is where we are looking at, uh, you know, a, a plain X-ray shows us the bone, the bone, uh, the coffin bone within the hoof capsule, and and we get a, a, um, a good look there, but it does not show us um, great great information about about the soft tissues. We can't see tendons and ligaments and, and vessels. Um, the the venogram, uh, it's it's an X-ray. But we've we've put a tourniquet on the foot and we've injected dye into the vein that feeds the foot, and then we that that dye shows up bright white. So we see the coffin bone inside the hoof capsule, surrounded by all the that vessels that that feed uh, the lamina and and all the all the tissue structures within the foot. Um, it gives us an indication of areas where there's leakage of blood and areas where there's uh, compression and where there should be blood, but maybe there isn't at the moment. It kind of gives us an idea. Um, I look at it as a look into the future sometimes of, of where's this case going. Uh, and it takes a lot of experience in, in doing venograms and looking, looking at them and knowing how a horse with this type of venogram did, you know, in your hands. So it's kind of an art form and there's a lot of people that, that really uh, believe in venograms. And then there's others that absolutely don't. So there's Two very different camps out there. Um, I personally find them find them very useful, um, but um, the the other the other thing that's going to give us an even an even better look at at soft tissue structures um, and not just the vessels it would be would be MRI and we're often uh, a lot of people are doing uh, studies now with contrast agents and things at the same time and uh, very you know expensive and involves. Uh, in, in, in a lot of cases, you know, there are standing MRIs, but a lot of cases we, we are having to lay them down for recumbent um, horse, uh, recumbent MRI or MRIs where they have to be laid down. Um, so that's a downside. But in general, to have a standing horse uh, with, with, with minimal, minimal um, instrumentation, a venogram can be done right in the barn aisle with, with an x-ray machine. So um, I, I hope that that answers your question. It doesn't give us any idea in terms of where the pain's coming from, um, w- but it does just give us an idea of, of, of where the damage is. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Fraley. We have a question for you, Dr. Greninger, uh, from Kelly in Colorado. And Kelly says there seems to be some controversy over alfalfa and laminitis and that it could maybe cause laminitis. You've already mentioned uh, protein in hay for these horses, but can you give us your opinion on alfalfa and its link to sure. laminitis? Sure. It's a great question. It comes up a lot um, when I'm talking to clients and owners. Um, so anecdotally, um, alfalfa and protein, people certainly worry a lot about in terms of causing laminitis. Um, there's actually no scientific data to support that um, that I'm aware of. And alfalfa when thinking about the non-structural carbohydrate level, again, of various feeds, um, those non-structural carbohydrates, again, being the thing that we're worried about in terms of um, laminitis risk for insulin-resistant horses. Alfalfa is actually lower in non-structural carbohydrates than a lot of the grass haze. Um, but the problem is that it's very calorically dense. So um, one flake of alfalfa, say six pounds of alfalfa, has a lot more calories in it than six pounds of grass hay. So um, looking on a calor- from a caloric standpoint, um, it's, uh, it provides a lot more calories and therefore horses who are having um, weight issues and that's helping predispose to um, insulin resistance and laminitis, alfalfa can be a challenging hay. But from a carbohydrate standpoint, um, it's actually, again, can tend to be safer than just a, a regular grass hay, rather than no grass hay. Um, the protein levels in alfalfa and protein in general 
um, or the protein in clover out in the pasture. Again, there's not been any scientific data that I'm aware of to um, link protein levels in feeds to laminitis. So if you're going to feed alfalfa, um, I think it can be an appropriate feed um, at, in smaller amounts um, for horses that are laminitic or prone to laminitis. Um, but I would, you know, bring it up and talk about it with your veterinarian um, in terms of what kind of calories your horses need and what sort of overall diet you have for them. Okay. Thank you. Dr. Fraley, uh, we have a question for you from Gail in Maryland. And Gail has a has a quarter horse who has white line disease and her farrier feels that he may have foundered at some point in his life. In the spring and summer, about every two to three weeks, he gets subsolar abscesses. Uh, he has always had what she describes as ouchy feet. Uh, what can she do besides limiting grass and keeping shoes on his front? And she wants to know, would stem cells help, help this horse? So there's several parts to this question. Um, could you explain to us a little bit what subsolar abscesses are? Um, sure. As well as white line disease and how these all might be connected to sure. laminitis. A absolutely. So um, it, it, it's a chicken and the egg kind of thing in, in this question in terms of the white line disease. So white line disease, it's a, it's a fungal um, organism. It can be mixed fungal and bacteria, actually, that, that actually digests the, the hoof wall itself. And, and horses can have severe enough white line disease and that, it, that they actually rotate. The coffin bone can rotate, and it can be very difficult to distinguish. But um, with, with a lateral x-ray and a DP x-ray, oftentimes we see debris and things up, up, up in the hoof capsule that help us uh, distinguish this disease from strictly um, chronic laminitis. So horses can get a little bit of rotation. Um, so I guess let me back up just to, just to explain what I'm saying. The horses can have white line disease and then rotate, um, or they can have a little bit of rotation that creates the opportunity for white line disease to set up shop. And, and so it, it's not uncommon that we see this uh, as a cause of uh, some some chronic changes, and it and it's not uncommon that we see um, horses um, with laminitis go ahead and develop white line disease. Um, now, the subsolar abscesses can can be coming just from uh, the the strain and the pull of the deep flexor tendon, and this horse is likely getting uh, thin soled, um, especially if he has severe enough white line disease. That, that he's kind of he has some instability in his hoof capsule, so his coffin bone is pushing down against the vessels that feed the foot and then or feed the sole, and then we get leakage of some um, often blood right outside of the out of the vessels, and then that leaves behind a lot of iron, a lot of a lot of things that bacteria love to grow in. In fact, you know we grow bacteria in a lab in a petri dish in a blood auger plate. So horses with laminitis often. Um, create this perfect environment for, for bacteria to set up shop. And those bacteria can come from the environment, so there's, there's often defects in the hoof capsule that let bacteria in, and then boom, we can get an abscess there. Or it can even be bloodborne and can settle out in, in those areas. So um, abscesses are very, very, very common in, in, in chronic laminitic horses, and it, it's something that we, that we have to deal with. Um, I guess... Uh, the the question in terms of of would would shoes help? Um, it my my gut feeling is um, based on the history of the white line disease, we we probably ought to be looking at, at at clearing this white line disease up once and for all, and that that can mean a pretty extensive debridement. So actually um, going in, removing the diseased hoof wall, and letting that area breathe. It it's, it, it actually exposing that area to oxygen. Um, often is enough. There's a lot of topicals out there that help, but then, um, as I mentioned, you know, these horses can go on and rotate secondary to white line disease, so it's important to kind of treat them mechanically as well. So we may need to make some shoeing changes, try to help this horse grow a better sole. Uh, it's a co complex question, um, and to, to, to not to skip over too much, but um, the, the question about stem cells is, um, you know, stem cells are, are becoming uh, very popular, and um, for the audience, you know, a stem cell is a cell in the body that, that's not differentiated too much yet. That cell is able to become, um, uh, for example, a stem cell could become um, 
a, a, a hair. It could become bone. It, it could become uh, a, a piece of, of blood vessel. Um, all the they're they're amazing cells, and they they do hold a lot of hope. I think for for healing. Um, I think in very uh, chronic cases where there's a lot of damage, um, uh, it, it's it's un, it's unlikely to help too much in the very chronic cases where, where the damage is severe. But in the early earlier cases, the, the early uh, chronic unstable horses is where we're using them the most at the moment. Um, you know, they, they do hold, hold some hope, and I think we're going to learn a lot more about stem cells and their, and their benefits. But the, the short answer would be the jury is still out on stem cells. They're, they're costly, um, and we're using them not as a single treatment. We're using them adjunctively. So we're doing all the other things that tend, we tended to do, shoeing-wise and medically, and then we're adding stem cells in. They're not going to be a standalone treatment at the moment. Uh, we're using them adjunctively. Dr. Greninger, do you expect us to see more coverage of stem cell usage and stem cell research in upcoming laminitis conferences? Indeed. Um, we're working on the program for this November's conference right now, and there's a big section on stem cells. Um, a lot of people are, are continuing to look at, you know, what they actually do once they're in the hoof, um, and, you know, is it all about helping regenerate sort of the appropriate tissues, or do they have more of an anti-inflammatory action and help provide other healing factors? So um, I think it's a topic that's here to stay, and we're learning more all the time about it. Okay. Yeah, and it, you know, just to add to that, uh, the, the, and, and it's something I've struggled with is, you know, we, we know we want to get these stem cells uh, in in the foot and get them to help. There are many ways uh, to deliver them, and we don't know even yet, you know, what is the best delivery method. So some people are giving them IV and uh, via the jugular, and there's a thought that they migrate to the site that they're needed. Um, most people are, are using them regionally, so we're putting a tourniquet on at the fetlock level, injecting them into the vessels just like we would for a venogram. Uh, some people are putting them intra-arterially at the, at the pasture level, and then others are injecting them subcutaneously around the coronary band. So, so there, there's just, it, it's early in this. Uh, we're, we're, all, we're all learning. We have a lot of hope for, for stem cells, but um, uh, at the moment we, ju we just don't know, don't know enough. So that is very cutting edge and futuristic type treatment. We're going to take a step back now to more of an old school question. And Dr. Greninger, I remember being a kid and having the cowboy down the street say, you know, you need to take your foundered pony and put him in the creek, uh, put his feet where they can get nice and cold. And we have a question from Karen in New Brunswick, Canada, and she wants to know how effective is standing a horse in ice water um, during early onset of laminitis? How effective is that in, in helping reduce the severity of the episode? Um, yeah, that's a great anecdote on your part. It's always funny to me that we've kind of come full circle back to icing. It's certainly um, a very hot topic, um, again, these past several years. Um, so the, the research group in um, Australia that works a lot on laminitis has done a lot of investigation into icing, which is what officially we call cryotherapy, um, and laminitis. The first thing they studied, which was really interesting, is that they um, they took horses and would put one side of the horse, so say the left front leg, um, the left hind leg, in ice, um, and then not the right side of the horse, um, for example. And then they would induce laminitis with um, a you know a combination of um, carbohydrates uh, into the gastrointestinal tract that they knew would cause laminitis. And the legs that were not in the ice got the severe, significant laminitis like they were expecting, but the legs that were in the ice water slurry did not. Um, and so they were able to prove several times over that um, icing really can prevent laminitis. So, um, and I'll get to answering once once the signs are there, um, like uh, Karen asked about. But so the first step was proving that you can actually prevent laminitis by um, icing the limbs. And again, that was having the horses in a nice ice water slurry up to their kind of mid-cannon region. Um, but then they wanted to know what the ice was actually doing. And so they evaluated that it actually um, it can have some anti-inflammatory effects, which again, laminitis being a disease of inflammation um, is critical. Um, it has some pain-relieving effects, and again, laminitis is a very painful disease as well, so that's really helpful, um, helping you know both the horse, but also sort of decreasing the kind of wind-up pain phenomenon that occurs once pain starts. That's that significant. Um, and then the next thing that they're just investigating 
finishing up investigating now and will be presenting again this fall at our conference um, in Florida is once you see the signs, because this is obviously what is most relevant um, to a lot of people, once you see that your horse is looking laminitic, how effective is ice? Um, and again, they've found that it's um, got some great anti-inflammatory properties um, and that it helps reduce pain um, among some other useful um, things that it does. So um, I think that in almost any instance, um, if you're waiting for, you, know, you put the phone call into the vet um, for your laminate course, um, if you can get ice um, on the lower limbs, that's really useful. Um, if you've got a really nice cold creek, that's terrific. Um, certainly that's not always possible. Um, if you have a couple of feed tubs um, that you can get your horse to stand in front and back um, with an ice water slurry, Again, ideally up to kind of the mid-cannon region, um, and you have to replace the ice every few hours depending on the temperature outside. Um, but really, it, it can be very helpful. Um, and one thing, you know, people always are worried about is, you know, if I had to stand in ice water for even a couple of hours, let alone days, you know, I would get frostbite. Um, horses, thankfully, you know, because they are um, animals that live outdoors and snow and in, in cold winter conditions, um, they have mechanisms to avoid that. So... Um, in these studies, they've kept the horses in ice water slurries even up to five to seven days with, with pretty minimal um, negative effects. Um, so I think, you know, if you're, again, waiting for the vet to come um, and or once you've, um, you know, been working with your vet, um, icing is, is almost always a good thing. I'd say potentially the only situation where I might not ice a, a horse right away is um, in, in one of those cases of support limb laminitis. Um, you would ask your vet about that when you call to see whether do that, but generally those horses are hospitalized um, because of their non-wavering lameness, so that shouldn't be an issue for the for the owner in the field trying to figure out whether to do this. Okay, thank you. And we are down to just under 15 minutes left. I'm going to move ahead on to some uh, shoeing and trimming type questions. Uh, Dr. Fraley, we have a question that came in via email asking if there is any evidence that trimming the laminitic hoof to shift weight bearing from the outer hoof wall is useful in promoting the recovery process. And that came from Debbie in Australia. Do you have a a response to that? Uh, Yes. Um, Anecdotal uh, for me in general, um, moving, moving, the the weight bearing from the outer hoof wall actually i getting getting the horse to to bear weight more towards the center of the foot towards the frog sometimes even asking the sole and the bars to 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 bear weight um is good especially horses that are that are sinking that comes to mind will often round up the wall and apply uh supports either things like um digital foam pads that allow them to sink into the pad and unload their wall but load the sole and frog more or sometimes impression dental impression materials and follow that up with casting for sinkers um but but in general that that is it is my goal in the in the therapeutic shoeing process no regardless of 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 type of shoe is to try to move the horse's weight bearing from the wall in, to some degree to to the center. So not we're not going to get all of it, but uh, for for example, that's where the heart bar shoe comes in. We're we're asking the the central portion of the foot, the frog, to engage uh, the, that heart bar and give some support to the bony column and try to unload the wall and and the lamina. And Dr. Fraley, we have a question, actually two questions that I'm going to kind of combine here. One is from Kathy in Virginia. And Kathy has a horse where radiograph revealed a slight rotation in the front right of her off-the-track thoroughbred. She wants to know if this is reversible with proper shoeing. Currently, she has him in a W shoe. He has been abscessing two two to three times a year in that same hoof. And then we also have a question from R. Ferrero in Abbotsford, uh, BC, Canada. And this person has a friend with a 19-year-old mare who found her about nine months ago. X-rays showed a 15% rotation on both front hoofs through constant and dedicated care. She's come through it and now is sound. Her question is, is it possible for the rotation to correct itself in any way or will it remain at 15%? Do you have have a response to both of those questions? That's a whole yes, lot in one chat. Yes, yes. So, so to... to, to to boil this, both of these questions down, the basic question is, uh, can a horse with chronic 
uh, laminitis, i.e. a horse with rotation, can, can that be reversed? And um, yes and no. <laughs> um, I've had many horses that, in fact, penetrate the sole even, um, countless horses that will penetrate the sole, have very severe rotation, and, um, you know, years later, uh, very difficult to tell that the horse had, had any, any sign of laminitis radi- radiographically. So uh, the, those, those horses, we, we can, with trimming, proper trimming and shoeing, have an amazing effect on the way that hoof remodels around the new position of the coffin bone. Um, however, we, we know from looking at at um, microscopic slides and things that that laminar attachment is never the same. It, there, there is some type of scar tissue, if you will, that will remain. So, so yes, radiographically we can make these horses and even, even externally make things look better and healthier, and that's always our goal, get a lot of sole depth under that coffin bone, try to minimize the amount of, of laminar stretching and things out there. But um, we're never going to reverse uh, in the chronic horse. We're never going to reverse those changes completely. Okay. Um, and if anyone's interested in finding out more information about those W shoes, we do have an article from our coverage of the laminitis conference that just happened this last, um, was it the end of October, uh, Dr. Greninger? And it was either that or the beginning of November, but that um, we do have an article explaining what that shoe is if if anyone wants to look that up on the search bar on thehorse.com. Um, our next question is for you, Dr. Greninger, and it's from Artis in Wisconsin. And Artis wants to know if there's a causative relationship between a severe allergic reaction and laminitis. Great question. Um, so if you try to do any research scientifically, um, looking online or looking through journals, there's not a whole lot written about this topic, but um, talk to any veterinarian um, or farrier or even many owners, um, and certainly it's something we see. Um, it makes sense if you think about a horse with a severe allergic reaction that either gets swelling or hives or respiratory problems. Um, you know, the, their skin is getting swollen and edematous, um, and you can imagine that the cells that line the lamina of the hooves and, again, hold that coffin bone within the hoof capsule, also potentially getting swollen and edematous and inflamed. Um, so we do see horses that um, sometimes it's, you know, horses that have really severe hives and after an insect bite or pollen or something like that, or horses who have severe allergic reactions um, to, you know, something they've eaten um, or uh, medication they've been given. Um, and they can get um, signs of laminitis. So um, it's kind of always on our radar when we're seeing a, a horse with a really bad allergy um, that their feet might be involved. Um, so, yes, it's out there. Okay. Thank you. And I just want to let our live audience know that we did get started about 10 minutes late this evening. It is 6.03, and I'm going to keep the doctors on the line if they agree uh, for a few more minutes so we can finish out our full hour. Are you guys with us for, for a few more? Absolutely. Sure thing. Okay. Thank you. We appreciate it. Uh, the next question is from Karen in Florida, and this is for Dr. Fraley. If a hoof is not trimmed properly or is out of balance, um, how would this affect what you see in an x-ray regarding the degree of r- rotation? Um. Okay. Yes, okay. So, so how, does, how, does, how much influence does the farrier have on what we're going to see? And could, could we be fooled in terms of uh, trimming, say, a lot of toe and, and, and not being able to tell if that horse had very much rotation? And um, yes, at first glance, we can make it look um, uh, almost normal on some horses with, with a fair amount of rotation. We could trim the heel back and take a lot of dorsal hoof wall and, and make that look better. But there's always going to be some evidence of that uh, with the trained eye to tell in, in general you know, what, what's going on. We could also use other things such as a, a venogram, for instance, to tell us, okay, uh, most of these chronic horses, we're going to see quite a bit of remodeling with, with the vasculature, a lot of different changes in the vasculature that might help us uh, decide as well. Um, and then there's things on the bottom of the foot that we're going to be able to look at. There's a, a horse with quite a bit of rotation. We're going to see what's called a CD toe. We're going to have this stretched lamina that we'll always be able to, to tell um, you know, uh, on those horses. Uh, that will tighten up over time, but um, 
Uh, I guess the, the farrier does. We do have a, a, a lot of ability to, to change the look of it, but, but uh, the trained eye is always, always going to be able to tell. Okay, thank you. Um, Dr. Greninger, we have a question for you from Kathy in Virginia, and Kathy wants to know if there's any hard science that shows dietary supplements can help prevent flare-ups of laminitis or help support the laminitis-prone horse. Um, so unfortunately, there's not a whole lot of hard science to show that this works. So a lot of the supplements contain things like chromium and magnesium and um, cinnamon, and that was extrapolated from human medicine where they found that people with insulin resistance, um, those types of things, chromium, magnesium, cinnamon, et cetera, um, helped improve the insulin sensitivity. Um, the studies that have been done in horses, looking at those, there's not very many, um, and unfortunately they didn't show any effect um, on insulin sensitivity in horses. That said, anecdotally, um, I've definitely spoken to some clients and other veterinarians who, um, you know, in addition to other management factors that are appropriate for horses with laminitis um, or insulin resistance, feel that supplements that contain those um, various things have really helped the horse and been a, a added benefit. So I think, um, you know, again, there hasn't been a whole lot of scientific research, so the fact that it hasn't yet shown that it's helpful um, is unfortunate, but um, I think adding it to a good management protocol otherwise, um, in some cases, uh, can be beneficial. Okay. Uh, Dr. Fraley, we have a question from Linda in Michigan, and Linda says that she has known several ponies who have had fairly severe founder, but seem to have made complete recoveries. And she wants to know if, if ponies are better at uh, making it through a laminitis episode than horses. Absolutely. It, do, it does seem to be the case. Uh, we, we have, uh, you know, a lot of ponies in, in my practice and from experience that they do seem to be able to overcome this disease uh, a little more handily. And I, I, I think that that can be, uh, in, in my estimation, due to a fairly robust kind of fairly thick hoof wall for its size, and fairly fairly robust hoof in general, just uh, more structurally significant. And then we're dealing with a little less weight, uh, probably per size for the size of the foot. So um, uh, in in general, yes, you're right. It does seem to be that ponies are are um, more able to to recover from this. Um, ha however, I mean that doesn't mean if if your pony is is laminitic that it's something we should we should ig ignore because no, I've, I've lost quite a few ponies as well. But but in general, that does seem to be the case that they are more apt to 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 recover. Yeah, ponies sure are tough little guys. Yes, yes. <laughs> they are. Um, Dr. Greninger, we actually have a question from our live audience regarding a pony. Patty in Montana says that she has a 16-year-old pony who foundered recently. He now is moving really well, but he still seems to have a digital pulse. She doesn't describe it as bounding, but there is a digital pulse in the leg. She wants to know if that if he's stable or not. Should she be concerned? Um. I have to base it a bit on, um, you know, both the movement, which is great that he's moving better, but also potentially radiographs if there's been any sort of rotation, if that's stabilized or if there's been no rotation and that was an acute flare-up with no radiographic changes. Um, digital pulses are really tricky. Um, obviously, we um, use them uh, to help guide, you know, what's going on in the hoof and how much inflammation there is, um, but as a sole um, way of understanding how much is still going on, um, there are challenge. So I think um, Patty needs to, um, you know, use what she's seeing with, you know, how the pony's moving well and combine that with, um, you know, what her, um, that's finding on radiographs and what her farrier's finding, you know, when, when he or she's working on the foot. Okay. Uh, Dr. Greninger, Nancy in Maryland wants to know if soaking hay can help a laminitis-prone horse. Um. It, yes. So uh, horses that are, again, in, the insulin-resistant horses um, and where you're trying to decrease the amount of non-structural carbohydrates in their diet, um, soaking hay can help get some of those non-structural carbohydrates out. Um, and generally it's a you know, grass hay that you're starting with and soaking. Um, and the idea is that you can soak, them, uh, soak the hay in hot water for 30 minutes or cold water for 60 minutes. Um, it does bring down the non-structural carbohydrate level in that, that flake of hay pretty readily. 
Um, you, I can't give you a specific percent because it's really variable depending on what the percentage was in that hay to start with and um, how much, you know, managed to leach out in that amount of time. But um, it's always going to decrease it somewhat. So if you have a horse who's insulin resistant and um, and you're really trying to, you know, modify their diet to decrease the non-structural carbohydrates, soaking can be great. Um, I would say two things about that. One is Obviously, you want to soak it just before you feed, so soak it and then drain out the water and feed. You can't pre-soak because obviously it can get moldy and and yucky pretty quickly. Um, And second, obviously, when you're soaking the hay as well, you're not only leaching out the non-structural carbohydrates, but also um, a lot of vitamins and minerals and and magnesium and phosphorus. And and so those horses definitely need to be on a a balanced um, vitamin-mineral supplement of some sort. Um, Again, obviously, one that's low in calories and low in non-structural carbohydrates, but there's plenty of those out there um, so that you're making sure that the horse is getting the appropriate vitamin minerals that he or she needs. So soaking is a good option. Okay. I'm going to try to sneak in two last questions before we wrap up tonight. Uh, The next one is for you, Dr. Greninger, and it came from April in New York. And April has a 21-year-old quarter horse gelding who has Cushing's and is on – percent currently. The horse also has COPD or heaves and the only meds that seem to help the heaves is uh, dexamethasone. Um, can can this help, will this predispose her horse to getting laminitis being on the steroid? Um, so uh, a horse who's um, cushionoid and potentially insulin resistant and hopefully she's addressing that you know, or, or she is addressing that with the Procend or Pergolide medication, um, but there's obviously still a risk there that there's some degree of insulin resistance um, in her gelding. Um, and those horses, we tend to think of um, laminitis as sort of a risk threshold. So usually there's not just one specific little thing that causes laminitis. There's sort of a culmination of a few um, risk factors that lead to laminitis. So um, steroids in a horse who's already insulin-resistant um, Higher dose steroids, or depending on the horse, certain types of steroids or doses of steroids um, can sort of be the straw that breaks the camel back. So it's kind of the final thing that can sort of push the horse over into a laminitic episode. Um, for her, her horse, it's very challenging, of course, because obviously he needs it to be able to breathe comfortably. Um, they can't, you can do inhaled steroids, um, and uh, that's a really great option because you're um, providing the steroids directly to the respiratory tract, and so they're um, absorbing a lot less systemically. So that'd be something to ask her veterinarian about um, getting the horse on an inhaler um, and uh, retesting to see sort of how, you know what degree of insulin resistance remains in the horse um, since he is being treated with the percent. Um, because if the you know if that's being fairly well controlled, obviously the risk of the steroid sort of having that cumulative effect and being the problem maker is, is much lower. But given how long you've had to be on it, I probably would advocate for trying to go to, to inhale, inhaled steroids just for, um, to, or to talk about it with her bed at least. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Greninger. So our last question of the night is for Dr. Fraley, and it came in from Ron, who is a farrier in Texas. And Ron is asking in an effort to better understand the medical or the mechanical advantages of various shoeing techniques. Can you explain the possible advantages of using a reverse shoe on a founder case? So these are the shoes that are put on backwards and it looks like your horse is walking backwards in their hoof prints. <laughs> sure. Sure. So also known as the bank robber shoes uh, <laughs> from the old Western. So um, act, actually that, you know, the reverse shoe can, can have some good, good mechanical effects and, and, um, I guess it really depends on how the shoe is fit and modified. And in general, what we're trying to do by turning the shoe around backwards and having the heels of the shoe end at the toe, a couple of things is leaving the toe open, uh, so no no sole pressure or anything where these horses tend to prolapse down a little bit and get sole pressure from the shoe. Um, It relieves that area. But then the, the main added benefit is that, especially in soft footing, that horse, uh, there's no surface area at the toe with the piece of shoe missing, so the horse will tip down and it it causes an increase in digital breakover, especially in soft footing. Um, That would be my my main um, uh, reason for not utilizing strictly a reverse shoe is is that it, it really is very beneficial in soft footing, not as beneficial on hard footing so or firm footing. 
so such as pavement. Um, so if I was going to use a reverse shoe in that respect, I would tend to rocker the shoe as well so that that horse can, can, can break over even on firm footing and have the benefits of, of relieving tension in the deep flexor tendon and consequently the lamina. Um, so, so I guess there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with the reverse shoe, especially in soft footing. Just um, we might need to modify it a little more. And then the other thing we need to remember is frog support. I think any time we just, just suspend the horse from its wall on a shoe without adding some type of frog support, um, that can be, can be dangerous. So, so I guess I, I would not use just a reverse shoe alone. Uh, we'd add some type of frog support, a pouring pad, weld in a heart bar, etc. Okay. Well, well, thank you, Dr. Fraley. Thank you also, Dr. Greninger. We are out of time, but we sure appreciate your expertise on this topic. It's so important and it affects so many of us that have horses at some point um, while we have them. I, I want to thank our sponsor, exclusivelyequine.com, which is our partner uh, official shop for thehorse.com. And if you'd like to listen to this audio again, you can get on thehorse.com tomorrow. It'll be archived, and you can listen to it at your own pace. Uh, we also have some great resources on the website. We just covered the Laminitis Conference back at the end of October, so we have lots of fresh articles, some videos. Dr. Greninger helped us out with some videos while we were there. So check that out um, to learn more. There's constantly new information. There's also the, the Laminitis study that Dr. Freely mentioned earlier. Um, Thank you again, everyone, for tuning in, and we hope that you'll join us next month. Thank you.